This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of For Real is sponsored by Book Riot Insiders, the digital bookish resource and hangout spot for readers. Enrich your reading life with our Book Riot Insiders perks. We've got three levels to Insiders, short story, novel, and the epic level, and you can try any level out for free for two weeks. For podcast lovers, meaning you, Insiders at the novel and epic level get access to two exclusive shows, the Read Harder Podcasts, which gives recommendations for the Read Harder Challenge task by task, and Book Riot Remixed, where we randomly pair up hosts from across our shows to talk about basically whatever they want. Insiders also get exclusive access to bookish deals, behind-the-scenes newsletters, our new release index, the Epic Book Club, and more. Sign up for your free trial at insiders.bookriot.com. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow writer Alice Burton. Recording this week's episode on Saturday, May 22nd. Hello, Alice. How are you today? I am getting through. How <laughs> are you? You know, I feel like I am finally like emerging into the world a little bit like I have gotten through my vaccines and my two weeks of waiting and my friends that I hang out with we did like an inside hangout at someone's house and we played board games (laughs) I ate in person at a restaurant you know it just feels very like emerging out into the universe again except then I remembered I'm an introvert and I kind of have liked not having to go places so I gotta like ease back in. That's like a real okay. That's a thing that I'm sure there will be like countless think pieces about. But like, mm-hmm. there's the guilt of being like, oh, I should be enjoying the world and going out and being around people. You know, like once, like mm-hmm. especially especially once we're reaching like a higher vaccine threshold, etc. Yeah. But also being like, okay, but before the pandemic, I liked staying home. So. <laughs> Can I still do that? <laughs> like, that's that's like the thought that I have been having frequently where I'm like, well, there's a social event and like, should I, I don't, I don't know if I want to go, but like, should I because it's been the pandemic? It's, yeah, it feels complicated. Yeah. Well, and then too, like people who have been working from home, like I've been really lucky and I've been able to do that, like shifting back into office life, like what is that going to be like and how much sort of energy it takes for introverts to be in those environments also so i feel like the next few months especially are going to be a very a balancing act of emerging slowly but it was really fun to play board games with my friends again because i haven't gotten to do that since march of 2020 and we we play real nerdy board games and it's great what's an example of a nerdy board game the one that we have been playing that we were playing pre-pandemic and we finished like right before the last time we hang out, we got to hang out was Pathfinders, the card game, which is sort of like, I don't even know how you, it's a deck building game where you have a character and you go on a campaign and every, you know, you do adventures and stuff by playing cards and it's, uh, it's, it's super nerdy. <laughs> I wish that my brain worked where I enjoyed board games. The only ones I like are ones that don't stress me out, like the game of life. <laughs> 
ironically. Uh, yes. Yeah, we started a new Pathfinders campaign this week. Wow. So we're trying to find our new characters and, like, build our decks. And we fought a, a guy who was kidnapping children in this adventure. Oh, good job. Mm-hmm. Uh, crushing that. Um, I have been watching a lot of Shark Tank. I just wanted to put that out there. I've been having <laughs> dreams about Shark Tank. I'd never seen it before. And now my wife and I are, like, obsessed with it. What are What is it about Shark Tank that you're obsessed with? I'm curious. It's the whole thing where it's like you learn about a new product and frequently they're like either fun or ridiculous. And then you have this like world of business discussion that is so beyond <laughs> my every day that and I know that they're on like season one million. So I'm very late to this party. But I'm just like, wow, that's fun. I mean, it's the same way that I got obsessed with Pawn Stars for a while. <laughs> where I was like, oh, you're gonna start that high. He's not. No, he's not gonna budge from that price. Like, <laughs> It's a whole thing. I don't know. I had a, I'm having a good time with it. But, um, oh, I wanted okay. to point out, uh, before we move on, that I finished City of Light, City of Poison by Holly Tucker, which Yay! is about the affair of the poisons in 17th century France under Louis Fourteenth. I really loved the beginning, maybe the first half. And then it feels like it gets so bogged down in, like, her rec- – like, you can tell, like, she was like, mm. oh, I found this, you know, in, like, an archive and I wanted to include it. And there's so many characters and it just feels like it's almost just, like, a chronological recitation of, like, this happened mm. and then this person. But the first half was great. <laughs> and I learned a lot more <laughs> about Louis XIV's relationships than I ever knew before. So that was fun. Well, there you go. Uh, let's jump into our first sponsor – which is Giovanni's Ring, My Life Inside the Real Sopranos by Giovanni Rocco and Douglas Schofield. So Giovanni's Ring is the story of Giovanni Rocco, a New Jersey police officer known undercover as Giovanni Gatto, who was the mysterious agent at the epicenter of Operation Charlie Horse. Do you ever wonder how they name these? It's a good one. A federal undercover operation that ultimately brought down 10 members and associates of New Jersey's De Cavalcante Mafia family, the crime organization known as the Real Sopranos. Giovanni's Ring is not simply a chronicle of Giovanni Rocco's adventures in the murky and dangerous mafia world he inhabited, but also a fascinating window into the psychological struggles that such a life inevitably entails. This is available in stores and online in time for Father's Day, uh, June 1st. So it is a must-read for any true crime or Sopranos fan, and it is a Perfect read to prep you for the forthcoming Sopranos prequel, The Many Saints of Newark, this fall. So again, that is Giovanni's Ring, My Life Inside the Real Sopranos by Giovanni Rocco and Douglas Schofield. Thank you for sponsoring. I did not know that there was going to be a Sopranos prequel coming. That is a fascinating piece of news. Yeah, I didn't either. And also, I really like that title. I do too. That is a really good title. That sounds fun. All right. So with that, uh, we'll shift into some nonfiction in the news, which is some nonfiction-related stories that we have seen lately. Um, We have uh, three of them to share this week. So the first one is mine. And so it's from Deadline by Peter White. And it is about how Barack and Michelle Obama's Higher Ground production company is going to be adapting The Sum of Us, which is a book we talked about on the podcast by Heather McGee, as a Spotify podcast series, which I think sounds uh, absolutely fascinating. So the book is a look at inequality and the lessons that generations of Americans have failed to learn that racism has a cost for everyone, not just for people of color. And so the book kind of goes through many different examples where 
it shows the, the most fascinating chapter that I remember from the book that I, part that I read was about public pools and how people didn't want intermixed uh, races at public pools. And so now that's why there's no public pools anymore, because white people pulled the, themselves out of public pools and they couldn't be funded. And it was a real bummer. So the book goes kind of all over the place. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that this could be a podcast series. I think each of the chapters is a really good example and you could dig down into it. And I think that would be kind of fascinating. So uh, it says the Some of Us podcast series will be an insightful and heartwarming journey across the United States with a focus on stories of unlikely connection and shared humanity across cultural divides. And it is expected to launch in early 2022, which I am very excited about that. So looking forward to more podcasts from Barack and Michelle Obama. That is very exciting. Uh, Another piece of news we have is that, so there is going to be a series adaptation of Kathy Park Hong's book, Minor Feelings, and Greta Lee is starring in and writing and and executive producing it. Greta Lee was in Russian Doll, the Netflix Ah, series. Ah, yeah. And uh, is going to be in the second season of Apple's The Morning Show, which is awesome. I originally knew her from like a a very particular sketch with Amy Schumer on her sketch show where she was <laughs> hilarious. So uh, she's she's been doing stuff for a while, but this is, of course, very exciting um, and that they're doing this adaptation. Yeah, that is very cool. Uh, and then the final one is also an adaptation. Uh this article is from Kirkus by David Rapp, and it is talks about how a film adaptation of Michael Lewis's The Premonition is in the works. So I think we talked about The Premonition last week, which is his book that just came out that's covering the COVID-19 pandemic, which I'm a little skeptical about given like that we're still in it. But apparently it's going to be a movie. And my favorite part of this story that we'll link to is that the filmmakers Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, who are the people who came up with the Lego movie, are attached as directors and producers. And I don't understand that at all. I'm very curious. I would, I can't, and then I can't decide if I want like a Lego movie version of the pandemic. Like, would it be fun to watch it as Legos? Would that make it more palatable somehow? I don't know. Get some more distance from it. Yeah. If they were Legos, like, would we feel less anxious about watching this movie i have no idea so anyway uh the premonition of pandemic story is going to be a movie sometime uh no no other news than that but it's i'm not surprised that it's going to be a movie i'm just curious how they're gonna do it yes (laughs) (laughs) all right so with that we will jump into uh new nonfiction books coming out soon or already out that we are excited to tell you about so uh, my first pick is a collection of essays. It's called The Window Seat, Notes from a Life in Motion by Amanita Forna. It uh, came out May 18th from Grove Press. And this is a collection about displacement, trauma, and memory, love, and how we coexist and encroach on the non-human world. So she is a really interesting person. Um, her father was from Sierra Leone and her mother was from Scotland. They met at a party in Scotland. They got married and moved to Sierra Leone. She was you know, born there. Um, they've divorced. And so Amanita spent a lot of her time as a kid traveling across Europe and Africa, seeing the world, staying at British boarding schools. So she had this really international upbringing. And a lot of that comes through in the essays in the book. The first one that I just loved is about flying and her experiences traveling as an unaccompanied minor and the experience of being in an airplane and what flying must look like to people on the ground and how flying lets us sort of hover over these different places and it eliminates borders in really interesting ways. And it just was really a cool essay that made me super nostalgic for traveling. 
And then the, the essays in the collection really, like, spread out from there. So there's one about how she kind of parallels Barack Obama's story with her own and how her parents, particularly her father and his father, were part of this generation of young African who came to the United Kingdom or the United States for education and then what they were expected to do afterwards and how those expectations filtered down to their children, which I think was a really fascinating essay. Um, there's one about a veterinarian in Sierra Leone. There's one about um, being a black woman outsider in the United States because she's not from here. And so she moves and what that experience is like. There's one about her living in Iran in 1979, right before the revolution. So they just kind of go all over the place, but they have these really interesting threads about like seeing the world and experiencing it from different perspectives. She is also a novelist, so she has a very clear eye for story that I really appreciate in the essays. Like, there's always a really clear thread in how they're put together. But the way that they're written is kind of in these little bursts. So you get a few paragraphs or, you know, four or five about one thing, and then it shifts gears a little bit. And it feels a little like they're moving around in lots of places, but it always comes together at the end of the essay. And you feel like, ah, oh, yes, I understand how you, how you put me here. So I just think they're really, really great. And like I said, making me really nostalgic for traveling and for all of the different places in the world that we haven't gotten to be around lately. So that is The Window Seat, Notes from a Life in Motion by Amanita Forna. Oh, that sounds really good. I think I like basically saw it in passing, you know, as a new release. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that you talked about it. My first new book for this week is, uh, I'm going to call it a dad book. <laughs> I was trying to think of how to encapsulate it, and I was like, this is just a dad book. But uh, I'm enjoying it. You know, it's uh, dad mm -hmm. books can be for everyone. So it's Electric City, The Lost History of Ford and Edison's American Utopia by Thomas Hager. This is about in Tennessee in the 19, like early 1920s, uh, Henry Ford and Thomas Edison decided to create this, basically attempt at like this technological metropolis. And no one knows about that now, right? Because it didn't happen. But the book is about the history of the area and basically going back to, I believe, the 18th century. And um, how basically how um, people were like, oh, wow, look at the Tennessee River. And there's like, we could create a dam here and that would provide power or like be helpful for shipping and like all this stuff. And like how the native people there were pushed out and basically, people decided to use it for capitalistic purposes, which gets tied in with the book because one of the advantages, uh, quote unquote, that Henry Ford and Thomas Edison saw for creating this Detroit of the South, uh, is what they called it, was uh, crippling the growth of socialism, which is funny because one of the reasons it didn't work was that they ended up instead there was a, a public corporation that came about, which was uh, one of the greatest achievements of the New Deal by <laughs> Franklin Delano Roosevelt. <laughs> so um, there's just, in one, on one hand, you know, it's kind of like, well, why would I read about a project that basically just didn't end up happening? I would say it's one of those things where the interest is the journey. <laughs> and so, you know, sort of seeing how like the background of Ford and how he got to this point and why he partnered with Edison and what their sort of dealing was with the government. There's also, I think it's funny, the author, his last book uh, before this was about fertilizer. And it's one of those things where you can tell, basically, like, he talks about it, but he also has a number of references to like, and this is, interestingly enough, like the place where these, this kind of fertilizer came about. You're like, okay, so you're just dropping in some facts from your last book. 
<laughs> still got this on the brain. But um, there's definitely a lot about American history, particularly in the Tennessee area, that I did not know. Um, so it was very interesting from that vantage point, as well as just American technology in the 1920s, I just didn't know much about. So just a, a number of areas, I felt like it was very interesting. Again, I feel like particularly probably interesting to, to dads. But if you just like history in general and like to know more facts, then I would recommend it. It is Electric City, The Lost History of Ford and Edison's American Utopia by Thomas Hager. That really makes me laugh. I like I do like stories about sort of like utopias that fail or like big ideas of like how we're going to reshape society that just like crash and burn. And they're, like, very particularly American, I think, too, this idea. And so that it's, like, Ford and Edison trying to, like, come up with this, like, metropolis. And, yeah, that's just, a, like, that's such a that's such an American story, too. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> In a really fascinating way. So that sounds really fun. That's a good pick. My second pick is called Down East, Five Main Girls and the Unseen Story of Rural America by Gigi George. And it comes out May 25th for Harper. And so this is one of those books that I think you could maybe slot into the, like, what is happening with rural America, you know, that we had a bunch of those that came out after the 2016 election, and they sort of came at it from different ways. And I'm not super interested in those all the time, but this one came at it from, like, a new direction, and that is what I found really fascinating about it. So uh, this book, as the subtitle suggests, is about five girls coming of age in rural Maine. They live in the very far northeast corner of the state that is very isolated. It's very rural, which is interesting because I never think of rural on the East Coast, even though, like, there obviously are huge swaths of rural areas on the East Coast, but that's my, my own bias of living in the Midwest, obviously. So they live in this very far northeast corner. It's isolated. It's poor. It's very rural. And it's also near Arcadia National Park. And so they live in this community that is very close to wealthy people and wealth from the tourists who come to that national park and visit the area for some of the natural like beauty and stuff. But they and their community are still like very disconnected from that. And so the author is a reporter. She um, follows five teenage girls. Their names are Willow, Vivian, McKenna, Audrey, and Josie over four years as they're growing up kind of through high school and get, heading off to college to look at their community, but also to better understand rural America through the lens of young women and how young women are going to help shape the future of rural areas, um, which I think is a really fascinating look because I don't think we've gotten that as much. So, you know, the book gets at, you know, issues of drug use and abuse in the community, uh, how the church and involvement with the church affects people of different ages and genders, um, their connections to sports. A couple of the girls are sports players. They're, I think, a softball player and a basketball player. They're very good. And so how sports plays into their lives and their kind of future plans. Lobster fishing is obviously a huge part of that. So one of the girls is connected to that through her family. A couple of them are intent on pursuing their education and moving out of the area as they grow older. So what does that look like for them? It's got a lot of the same kind of themes that you might get in other, like, I, I read a lot of Midwest rural stories, right, where, like, there's issues of dwindling population, loss of jobs, drugs and opioids and those kind of things. But it's coming at it from the perspective of young women in the Northeast, which is different for me. And so I just think it's really fascinating. I appreciate the approach, too, of spending a significant amount of time with these young women to hear their stories and give their voices and let them kind of say what they want to say about their lives and what we can, how we can understand them and 
maybe what the next phase of rural life might be through their kind of dreams and ideas and their their goals and stuff. So I really like this one. Down East, Five Main Girls and the Unseen Story of Rural America by Gigi George. Oh, you're right. That is a different kind of lens. Yeah. For that story. That's really interesting. Good job. I'm going to end us on, on a heavier, I would say, book. I'm so glad you're talking about this one, though. Okay. So it is America on Fire, the Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s by Elizabeth Hinton. Hinton is an associate professor of history and African-American studies at Yale and a professor of law at Yale Law School, which uh, is very impressive. <laughs> I'm just like, wow. Um, so what, what this book is about is talking about how, you know, we, we had nationwide protests in response to the killing of George Floyd in 2020. And there was a lot of what Hinton would call Black Rebellion happening at that time. She says that this has been a uh, – the word that has been used is riot and that that is a misnomer and that we should be replacing it with the word rebellion, which I feel like in and of itself is a valuable thing to take away from this book. She describes that as explosions of collective resistance to an unequal and violent order. So – and with this book, she's hoping to take the events of 2020 and kind of place them in this context and say how since the 60s, this has kind of been the path that we are on as a result of uh, the events of the 1960s. So I highlighted so much in this, but you know, when you're like reading a book potentially on like an an e-reader and just highlighting like multiple things on every page. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's that's what this book is for me. So one of the things that she talks about is that, so a lot of the the stuff that happened was as a result of policies enacted in the 1960s under um, starting, I believe with, Johnson. And one of the things I was shocked by was that one week after Johnson sent the Voting Rights Act in 1965 to Congress, which of course is, you know, tremendously important, he called for a war on crime, like one Mm -hmm. week after. And in 1968, there was something called the Kerner Commission, which offered uh, this alternative to the escalation of policing, right? Because one of the things in the 60s was they were like, okay, there are all these quote unquote riots happening in major c- cities. And so we need to, you know, flood police departments with cash and give them military grade weapons, basically. And uh, that's kind of led to the current situation we have. But the Kerner Commission told federal policymakers that unless there was a massive investment into poor black communities, uh, rebellion and, quote, white retaliation would entrench racial inequality as a permanent feature of American life. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, they were saying this in 1968? And obviously, nothing was done about that. And there was just – so there's a lot that she gets into in terms of just, again, giving you this information that you might not know. It's shocking to me to think now that the 60s were, I mean, essentially 60 years ago, which because you're growing up, you're like, oh, that's not that long ago. But like now we've had so much time to just get these these policies just really entrenched. And so part of what's going on now is we can look at those and bring them into light, which Hinton is doing, and then talk about why they're not working and why we need to do something else similar to what the Kerner Commission is saying. So it's just, you know, I love uh, research and I love facts. And that's why <laughs> I, I do this <laughs> podcast personally. And so she's really leaning into that, which is fantastic. If uh, you are interested, it is out now. 
Uh, it came out May 18th from Live Right. So again, that is America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s by Elizabeth Hinton. I'm super glad you talked about that one because I think like it's just a really important thing to talk about and understand better given like everything that's been happening over the last year since George Floyd and really like trying to like understand rebellion and what what looks like rioting and but what it actually is and what it is connected to and that it's systemic and really like check your like initial reactions to that and understand it better and why that is like a a response to state violence. So I'm really, this is a really important one. I'm super glad you talked about it because I think it's, it's a valuable addition to everything that we're all trying to talk about. I have two real quick mentions of ones that I didn't get a chance to read at all, but they looked really great and I wanted to mention before they like slip off the radar. So the first one is called Better Not Bitter, Living on Purpose in the Pursuit of Racial Justice by Yusuf Salam. He is one of the exonerated five who were formerly the Central Park Five, um, who was sent to prison as a teenager after being accused of raping and killing a woman in Central Park. This memoir is the first time, I believe, that one of the men has told their own story in their own words. And so it's a memoir, it's a personal story, but also a book looking at prison reform, about justice systems, and how we can turn anger into action in the face of injustice. And the reviews I read of this one described it as warm, generous, and inspirational, which I don't know, that just made me really want to pick it up more. So, Better Not Better, Living on Purpose in the Pursuit of Racial Justice by Yusuf Salam is one. And then Tastes Like War by Grace Cho, uh, which is a memoir about food, family, and history um, that connects Korean meals, memories of mothers fighting racism and the onset of schizophrenia, and references ranging from Christine Blasey Ford's testimony to the essays of Ralph Ellison. So this book is kind of a food memoir. It's also a sociological investigation that the author goes on to try and understand the root of her mother's schizophrenia and then kind of connections around family and food um which those are all things that i really love um so i'm i'm excited to to pick this one up too so that's tastes like war by grace cho oh those are two good additions yeah i was really bummed i just like i'm having a hard time reading right now so i didn't get a chance to poke around with them but they both sound really good and i didn't want them to disappear without mention so All right, so that wraps up new books for this week. Uh, We can get into our second sponsor. Uh, We are also sponsored this week by The Ex-Girlfriend of My Ex-Girlfriend is My Girlfriend, published by Chronicle Books. For this book, you should fix yourself a cup of non-caffeinated herbal tea and prepare to laugh, cry, reminisce, and feel your feelings as you read through these quintessentially queer dating dilemmas. In The Ex-Girlfriend of My Ex-Girlfriend is My Girlfriend, advice columnist Maddie Court answers anonymous queries from lesbian, bisexual, and queer women and people of marginalized genders. Uh, The book is illustrated by comics artist Kelsey Roten and based on the viral zine of the same name. Uh, The book will answer all of your questions about queer relationships with the warmth and honesty of the gay big sister that you wish you had. This is a lovely illustrated book of advice on love, dating, and friendship written by and for queer women and people of marginalized genders. It averages four stars on Goodreads, which is actually quite impressive, and it features never-before-published letters and responses about first loves, heartbreak, coming out, and queer friendship. So that is The Ex-Girlfriend of My Ex-Girlfriend is My Girlfriend, published by Chronicle Books. And we thank them for sponsoring us this week. All right, Alice, I'm going to let you introduce this week's topic because you are very excited about it, and I would (laughs) like to hear about that. (laughs) I asked him if we could do History's Mysteries. (laughs) Because I really like them. Um, No, I mean, everyone, I think, loves a a sort of unexplained thing that they get to hypothesize about. Mm -hmm. And there are some just really weird things that have happened in the past that at this point 
it's likely we will never know the answer. Um, it's funny because the the first one I'm going to talk about, we there might be an answer, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but they've they've been either mysteries for a long time or um, have just I don't know, just provoked a lot of discussion, a lot of speculation. Oh yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> There's just been wild and rampant speculation about uh, many of these things. So really psyched to dive in. So uh, Kim, do you have any? side commentary on no i'm just i'm very i love hearing you talk about history uh so i'm really <laughs> excited about the ones you picked and just like listening to you explain them because a couple of them are ones that i've never heard of before so they're mysteries of history's mysteries i love the past okay <laughs> so my first pick is dead mountain the untold true story of the dyatlov pass incident by donnie eicher so I recently talked about the Dyatlov Pass incident because there was a new do- news article that um, these scientists, they used the technology from the movie Frozen to basically reenact the what would have happened with an uh, av- avalanche hitting the camp. But before we get into that, let's talk about what the Dyatlov Pass incident was. In February 1959, a group of nine experienced hikers in the Russian Ural Mountains died mysteriously on an elevation known as Dead Mountain. So there were unexplained violent injuries, signs that they cut the tent open and fled without proper clothing or shoes, a really weird final photograph taken by one of the hikers, and then elevated levels of radiation found on some of their clothes. So obviously one of the theories was aliens. Obviously. I'm sure some people still believe this, but I'm not, I'm not saying it's definitely not. I, you know, <laughs> who, who knows really? But there's just like, so what this book does is they interview a lot of the people who were kind of around at the time. There was one person who was part of the, the hike and ended up not making the final hike, like up the mountain because um, of illness. So they talked to that person. And ju- they look at Russian case documents, the hikers' diaries. Um, the author is an American documentarian, so, you know, very sort of committed to telling a story based in truth or hopefully entirely truth as much as we are able. So the current idea of the Dyatlov Pass, like they're like, oh, we finally solved it, right? Is that an avalanche hit the campsite and that it explains like everything? That's what they're saying. You can decide to believe that or not. <laughs> you get to uh, make that decision. But it's it's definitely extremely weird. It's prompted a lot of speculation for s- over 60 years. And I think it's it's something to read about to sort of, you know, be like, wow, what do, what do I think about this? Um, again, that is Dead Mountain, the untold true story of the Dyatlov Pass incident by Donnie Eicher. Excellent. That sounds super interesting and very mysterious. So my first pick is... I am going to admit a little bit of a stretch for this theme, but I finished reading it in the last week or so, and it was so good that I wanted to talk about it, and I feel like I can make a case for it. So here we go. (laughs) The book is called Sensational, The Hidden History of America's Girl Stunt Reporters by Kim Todd. Uh, It was out earlier this year, April 13th, and I found out about it uh, because of Alice's excellent true story newsletter. Uh, So this book is a social history that brings to light the girl stunt reporters of the Gilded Age. So it's all about these women who... Before, like, really undercover reporting and all of the kinds of, like, really cool journalism that I love today was a thing, these were the first people doing it. And so in the 1880s and 90s and into the, like, early 1900s, there are these huge battles among the New York newspapers around circulation. And so one of the ways that they would get readers is by having these women 
kind of go undercover and do these stunts, either go undercover to expose social ills or also just like do stunts. Like there was one where like one of the stunt reporters like learned to train an elephant. So like highbrow and kind of lowbrow stuff. But the really like highbrow and interesting stuff was women who would snuck into, sneak into um, factories or all these different things to try and expose the terrible conditions that affected the way like mostly other women lived and worked. And so they would, you know, go into sewing factories to report on child labor. They fainted in the streets trying to test public hospital treatments. Uh, They posed as lobbyists trying to expose corrupt politicians. And then they would write these multi-page epics across multiple days in the newspaper that helped make enormous social changes through their work. The most probably famous stunt reporter is Nellie Bly, who started her career getting admitted to Blackwell's Insane Asylum for Women. And that stunt um, opened the door for many other women to do the same. And so through this period of the 1880s, 90s, into the 1900s, there were women stunt reporters across the country at all sorts of different newspapers doing all sorts of different kinds of things. And so this book is a history of their work. And so it goes kind of chronologically to show how stunt reporting emerged, how it was connected to like important social issues of the day, and what the various stunts that women were trying had to say about the roles of women kind of contemporary temporarily how women's bodies and work were were considered at that time you know the things that women had to push against the things that they couldn't really overcome to do their reporting and then later in the book gets into how these female reporters don't get the credit they deserve when we talk about modern journalism um by the time like the end of the stunt reporting era ended or like eased out they were getting accused of doing like sensationalizing and yellow journalism but then like later into the progressive era men primarily got to be called muckrakers and it was like so admired when they went in and did all this like kind of undercover work And then, like, into the 60s and 70s when we talk about new journalism, um, and even today when we talk about, like, immersion journalism and creative nonfiction, the work of women, even today, is not given the same credence when it comes to journalistic – it's just not given the same weight. And they – she's able to tie that back to the stunt reporters and how their work was not given the same weight as male reporters uh, doing many similar things. So it's really fascinating all the different, like, threads she's able to tie together by talking about these women and their stories. So the mystery part of this book, there's two of them. Um, The first is that women stunt reporters were reporting at the time of the Lizzie Borden murders. And so there's a couple of chapters about the female reporters who covered her trial and how their perspectives differed from most of the general reporting done by male reporters. Um, And there's a story about one female reporter who got an exclusive interview with Lizzie Borden and then wrote some really personal first-person accounts of the trial and were connected there. And so that's a historical mystery. We still don't really know what happened there. And then the other part is that many of these reporters wrote under pseudonyms. And so we don't actually know who they are. And one of the threads of the book that the author pulls through is trying to uncover who the girl reporter was who wrote a bunch of articles for a newspaper in Chicago. Um, Her most famous one was where she went around to a bunch of doctors and tried to get an abortion and then reported on what happened. But she never signed her articles with her full name, and no one has ever really been able to figure out who she is. And so the author tries to do that throughout the book, trying to understand who the girl reporter is and many of these other women who didn't write under their real names. So there's some mystery there about who they actually are. I love this book. It was so good. It's like right in my wheelhouse of things that I care deeply about, but I think it's really great. And another book about like things women were doing that we don't give them enough credit for at the time. So Sensational, The Hidden History of America's Girl Stunt Reporters by Kim Todd. Um, I'm going to give you that one just because yeah. I feel like we should talk about that book. <laughs> 
<laughs> also, also, okay, did I tell you that I visited uh, the former site of Blackwell's Insane Asylum? No. Tell me about this. Okay, literally, like, in the last month. So I uh, was on Roosevelt Island, and I did not realize, despite having read an entire book about it, that it was Blackwell's Island. Like, it's the same place. Um, it's in between Manhattan and Queens. You can walk there, uh, although the walk is a little perilous. <laughs> it's right <laughs> next to a busy bridge. But essentially, all that's left of the insane asylum part, there's that, there's the ruins of a smallpox hospital on the south end of the island, along with a house from the 18th century that has been very rehabbed, and I stepped inside and was disappointed. But anyway, so of the insane asylum, there's just this thing called the octagon, which is this octagonal stone tower. Mm-hmm. And this is where Nellie Bly was. It's where Charles Dickens visited um, when he was there for his American Notes uh, series. And there's nothing about either of them on the outside. There is like a brief plaque. I stepped inside it. It has been converted into apartments. Oh, weird. Yes. So there's like a concierge desk. And you're like, wait, really? Weird. <laughs> weird. <laughs> um. Apparently, there's nothing about the asylum history on the website, but according to Atlas Obscura, residents have reported uh, hearing and seeing ghosts, which I am unsurprised by because, oh my gosh. Indeed, yeah. Oh, bad place. Bad place. So speaking of mysteries, there we go. (laughs) Are there ghosts in the octagon? Probably. Most likely. Uh, Speaking again of ghosts. Oh, that was good. My other pick is Ghost Ship. The Mysterious True Story of the Mary Celeste and Her Missing Crew by Brian Hicks. Uh, In 1872, in December, a 100-foot-long ship was found drifting through the North Atlantic, and no one was on it, which is so creepy. There was no sign of damage, no uh, ransacked cargo, quote-unquote, and there was uh, the people on board had been the captain, his wife and daughter, and the crew. So it's been 150 years, and... We still don't know what happened, which is such, like, I mean, there are, again, there are theories, which is, again, like, this is the whole point of the, I mean, people died. It's very sad. But um, in the wake of all of that, it's sort of like, what happened? It's interesting to talk about. And they say, like, there's this whole thing in the book about how, like, the Mary Celeste was a cursed ship. And that her first captain died before completing the maiden voyage. She rammed into and sank an English brig. Uh, She was abandoned by her crew during a storm another time. Like, they kept trying with this ship. (laughs) And and then after, so they find the ship floating, right? And everyone's gone. And then they send it out again. And they were like, okay, I don't know who decided that they wanted to go on board this ship. But basically, the people who ended up sailing her sank her for insurance like 10 years yeah so then clive cussler like funded a dive (laughs) to try like this this story goes everywhere bananas clive cussler funded a dive to uh locate the wreck off haiti but then there's like some questions about whether that's actually the mary celeste because of the age of some trees that they found (laughs) like it gets (laughs) there's a lot going on so good but basically, again, if you want, like, a, a story that's very, like, what happened, then it is. Okay. Ghost Ship, the mysterious true story of the Mary Celeste and her missing crew by Brian Hicks. Excellent. That sounds amazing. And yeah, lots of twists and turns there. I did not expect Clive Cussler to show up, but <laughs> here we are. Here we are. All right. So uh, my last pick is 
I feel like we've talked about this a long time ago, but it's a really good one, so I want to bring it up again. So that is The Skies Belong to Us, Love and Terror in the Golden Age of Hijacking by Brendan Kerner, which came out back in 2013. And so this is a book about, um, there's kind of two threads of the book. There's one story of two particular hijackers, and then there's like a more general story about hijacking, in the golden age of hijacking in like the late 60s and early 70s. So the romantic story of it is these two people, uh, Roger Holder and Kathy Kirkow, they commandeered a Western Airlines flight as a protest against the, the war. So they hijacked this plane and they managed like because of like both being a little bit savvy, but also like a lot of luck on their part. They managed to get across the ocean with half a million dollars in ransom, and they became these notorious uh, hijackers who were successful. And so they there's a bunch of different threads in this. It has to do with like there's Black Panthers, and there's African despots, and there's French movie stars, and all sorts of documents uh, trying to figure out with who these people were and what happened. And so he explores that story and tells you kind of their whole saga um, as hijackers. But then also sort of steps back and looks at, like, why hijacking was such a thing. And so having to do with, like, the Vietnam War and the demise of the idealism of the 60s. And at the time, hijackings became super routine and people just expected them to happen. And so in the late 1960s, like, almost once a week, commercial jets got hijacked, which just seems bananas today. Mm-hmm. And it was just a whole big thing. And so I, I picked this one not because, like, the mystery of Roger Holder and Kathy Kirkow, because that is pretty solved. But um, there are a lot of hijackings, including, like, D.B. Cooper, that have never been solved. And so there's a lot of mystery around some of these hijackings and that they're still trying to understand what happened. Uh, and this one's really fun. It's just a really, like, nice history weird thing that happened that today feels like there's no way, like, how could this possibly happen? But there was a lot of hijackings for a while and that's real weird to me so this guy's belong to us love and terror in the golden age of hijacking by brendan and kerner Ooh, i'll give you that because you mentioned db cooper yeah which i feel like he definitely falls within you know like mm-hmm. this grand mm-hmm. histories mysteries uh uh panoply <laughs> let's use that word yeah, I should have started. I should have led with D.B. Cooper. But yeah, that was what made me think of this one. Well, there's no like specific book about D.B. Cooper that I found that's like really like they all are kind of like, I am D.B. Cooper. And you're like, OK, no, you're not. You know what I mean? Like it's there's <laughs> yeah. just a lot. I did just watch a documentary about D.B. Cooper. That was so good. Only I'm so credulous uh, a lot of the time. <laughs> in the absence of regular facts about it, right? It's just someone <laughs> telling a story that for basically every person, I'd be like, yeah, I could see that being you. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was a good documentary. Excellent. Yeah, so there's some uh, histories, mysteries. There are many more histories, mysteries that we could have talked about, but got a few to, I don't know, I don't know what the what, what I want to say. Wet your palate. Do people not say that anymore? <laughs> I have no idea. But some mysteries, mysteries. All right. We'll wrap up by talking about the books we are reading right at this very moment. Um, I'm in the middle of a, like, space kick in all areas of my life. Um, my boyfriend and I are watching For All Mankind, which is the Apple TV show that is premised on the idea that the Soviets got to the moon first, and then they sent a woman astronaut to the moon. And so it kind of changes the whole idea of the space race. And it is super fascinating and really good. So I've been reading a bunch of space books. So um, one of them is All Systems Read, The Murderbot Diaries by Martha Wells, which is a sci-fi novella series about a robot that 
becomes sentient, basically, and then is really funny. Uh, It's great. And then the other one is called Once Upon a Time I Lived on Mars, Space Exploration and Life on Earth by Kate Green. And this is uh, kind of a memoir and essay by a woman who joined a scientific experiment here on Earth um, that was going to replicate what it's like to live on Mars and specifically trying to look at how food and the ability to cook and eat fresh food or make food creatively could um, potentially make long-term time and space better. And so she is writing about that. And it's really fascinating, too, because I love experiments and space. Uh, All Murderbot wants to do is sit by itself and watch TV, (laughs) which I think we can all relate to. Indeed, yes. It's great. Um, I am currently reading, meaning I am very early in, to Three Martini Afternoons at the Ritz, The Rebellion of Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton by Gail Crowther. It's one of those books that I pick up whenever I don't want to be stressed out, which is kind of weird because they both had very sad ends. They um, both died by uh, suicide, so just be aware of that. But they had a very long, weird friendship, and they (laughs) would uh, get martinis at the Ritz-Carlton bar. So, you know, again, like... Like from that perspective, I'm kind of like, yeah, I just want to read about these people just meeting up and chatting. Like, yeah, that's that sounds fine. So I'm I'm enjoying that. And in conclusion, you can find us on social media. I am at it's Alice time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Uh, our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. And if you have time, we would love it if you would take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us more easily. And then while you're there, you can follow so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. So with that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast.